Hello, I'm Beverly Taylor. We've reached another milestone. We have wrapped up season six of the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. I want to thank those who have joined us along the way. We're going to take the next two episodes to review the podcast in season six and encourage you to check out the full versions on YouTube or any podcast platform. The 411 Live. Where you can learn about issues that affect us every day. State of world. 411 Live. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your Episode one, stress, mindfulness, and meditation. Do you ever find yourself stressed out and can't seem to manage it? And have you heard people talk about a state of well-being and you're wondering, what exactly is that? How do I get it? I chat with Susan Lubar, founder and president of Growing Minds, a pioneer in providing mindfulness-based practices. So I always like to start by getting into a mindful position. And that means generally, if you're sitting two feet on the floor and a long, strong back. Mm. Okay. Okay? So not rigid, right? We're not in the Army, but also not like you're watching the Packers. Just (laughs) relaxed but alert. Okay? So just begin. If you want, close your eyes. And if not, just simply look down to steady your mind. Mm -hmm. And let's begin by simply feeling your bottom on the chair. So see if you can bring your attention there without actually looking. If you're standing, you can feel your feet on the floor, feeling your heels, toes. Okay, then moving your attention to your shoulders. Mm. And if you feel tightness or tension, just move them around a little bit. You know, use this as a moment to check in. How could I be that much more comfortable. And then check in on with your jaw. Is that tight? Maybe just letting that lower jaw soften. And then your eyes. If there's any tension in the corners or the lids or between the eyebrows, notice that. You don't have to change it. We're just noticing this is where I hold tightness. And if you want, you can soften it. Okay. Okay, so from here, I want you to bring an attention towards yourself that's kind and gentle, non-judgmental. So instead of asking yourself, am I doing this right or wrong? There is no right or wrong. As long as you can sense your own body, you're doing the right thing. Bring this awareness that you would bring towards an infant or maybe a puppy. Just that tenderness, that kindness, like, it's me. Ah, I'm okay just the way I am. And now, if you want, you can put your hand on your heart or your belly if that helps to stay in touch with yourself so your mind doesn't wander so much. And then take three breaths. So as you breathe in, see if you can feel the body moving. And as you breathe out, what happens to the body as you breathe out? And for those of you with your eyes open, I'm going to use my breathing ball. 
And just use this to show what breathing in. This is what happens to your belly. And breathing out. Again, feeling your body as you breathe. So paying attention to the breath. And when your mind wanders to something else, like am I doing this right or how long is she going to go, notice that and then bring it back to the feeling of your breath in your body. Okay. And when you're ready, just letting go of feeling your body or your breath and taking a moment to notice what happened to you in that minute or two. What changed? Did your shoulders soften? Did your heart slow down? Do you feel differently? And then opening your eyes. Yeah. I feel more relaxed. That's for sure. Powerful. That yeah. in that short a time, mm -hmm. doesn't cost you a penny. Just by paying attention to yourself, you can actually calm your nervous system. Yeah. And I like putting your hand on your chest or your belly, you know, just to feel that. Yes. And, you, and feeling the breathing. Yes. That helps you. You know, stop thinking about where you're going to go in the next few minutes. <laughs> you know. it, it does. And the science behind that, because I know you love science, is this. When you're paying attention to sensations or feelings in your body, it stops your mind from thinking. Mm. So there's a thinking mode and a sensing mode. And when you're sensing your body, the thinking mode turns off. So it's a mini vacation. Yeah. It takes you away from the to-do list and the pressure of I've got this and this and this. And it's like, oh, yeah, I have tightness here. Oh, I can breathe into mm -hmm. it and soften it. Yeah. And it's empowering. We call episode two community-based mental health, how to approach mental health with children. You can't predict what life will throw at you or how it will impact you. For example, many adults are having a tough time maneuvering everyday life because of trauma, and children unfortunately face trauma too. Sometimes there is a need for professional help to overcome the effects. Therapist Patrice Macbeth and Aaron Heffernan with Jewish Family Services explain what that could look like. Uh, so I got a call from a first grade teacher while I was at the school about a little boy that the school already knew had lost a, a primary caregiver before the pandemic. And the boy was walking around, taking his mask off, saying, I, I want to get sick. I don't want to mm -hmm. live. I, do, I don't want to be here. And spoke to teacher and a school administrator who found out that there was a very important elder in the family who had passed of COVID the week that school started. And so throw in multiple moves during the pandemic, you know, just some other situational stressors. The school got it. It wasn't, a, you know, it wasn't a punitive approach. It was a very trauma-informed understanding. So I came up and met this little boy. And something I brought, it's my little prop, um, something I carry around my neck is a pulse oximeter. This is what nurses all know. It's, right. It measures your heart rate and your blood oxygen content. Put your little finger in there. You, exactly. Yeah. You stick your finger in it. Mm -hmm. And there's something about something hanging around your neck that children just want to know about. So so his heart rate was was a healthy, you know, variable rate, sometimes 89, sometimes 99, and, and kind of healthy. And it reached 100. He's really looking at his heart rate. 
And, you know, he had been upset but was really calming down looking at this thing and mm-hmm. being in close proximity to me. And we had our masks on, and he, and he said, it reached 100. I said, yes, it did. And he looked up at me with big eyes, and he said, does that mean I'm happy? Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> I said, you sure look happy. It means your heart's happy. Mm-hmm. So I think we, we, we approach this work with the fundamental belief that children are oriented towards health, and humans are. And that the job of therapy is to create an environment to allow that health to come forward. And we also don't sweep under the rug the fact that negative experience, overwhelming experiences, have a way of getting stuck within the body, within the mind. And difficult memories aren't typically worked through in the way that neutral memories are. And so... Again, like Patrice says, it's about knowing how to play. It's about knowing how to speak the language of children. And maybe to remind adults that they can and perhaps should remember to play, too. I mean, adults like words. It's what we know. It's how we do our lives. But it's good and important for adults to know how to get on the floor and get their hands in the sand tray and be alongside that kid while they're showing the car crash to allow them to work through oh, there's also a flower here. There's also these other positive things that feel good. You know, it's interesting, as you were saying that, it made me think of, I used to like this show, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was something about a nanny, professional nanny or something, and she would come yeah. to the family and help work, that, work out their family issues and stuff like that. And a lot of times you see that within that family dynamic, the parents don't play with the kids. You know, it's always we've got to do this, we've got to get the meal on, we gotta do we gotta go to soccer practices practice, we gotta, you know, do 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 But they don't play with the kids. So that what you just said Yeah, and is, it's not on parents. I mean there's not I mean the parents are doing the best they can right. and sometimes and I know the show you're talking mm-hmm. about, I think what that show would really portray was structure and rules, expectations and consequences in a chart that's written down. And I think that's effective and works well on a TV show. And you're absolutely right. Usually this the stress of modern living makes it tough for adults to know how to fit in time for play right. and switch switch out of dinner preparation and laundry folding to know to take time to get on the floor or to get creative mm-hmm. with laundry and dinner prepped in a way that's playful. It's very hard. I mean, parents are under, under a lot. Yeah, pressure. Uh, of pressure. So the last thing we want to do is saying you're being a bad parent because you're not being playful enough, right? Right. <laughs> but it's like just keeping it on the radar that that's that should be fit in the schedule too. Yeah. The kids need that. <clears throat> and I agree with Aaron. Even with finding ways to weave them into mm. like meal prep or folding laundry, because I used to play with my daughter with folding sheets, you know, but we would get it done, but it wouldn't always be perfect. But you know, just weaving that into like including them and not just having them play in in a corner somewhere. Right. That's play. That's mm-hmm. play. Mm-hmm. And they love doing things that adults do. So that, that's a great example. Episode three, how to take a transformative approach to America's poverty. It tackles the impact of poverty, including food insecurity, substantial housing, homelessness, inadequate child care, lack of access to quality health care, unsafe neighborhoods, and under-resourced schools. Dr. George Hinton, CEO of Social Development Commission, or SDC, explains how the agency advocates for people living in poverty and efforts to make the agency stronger. The, the, whole, the whole community has gone from being transforming, transforming why we had poverty, transforming the issues that is specifically 
impacted people of color, Mm -hmm. regardless if it was through slavery or through immigration, to really approaching it from a transactional perspective. How do we help people survive? Surviving, it doesn't, it helps. It makes people feel good. Maybe we can help one or two families or many families, but it doesn't take away the problem of why we have poverty, why we have uh, systems in place that may be racist in perspective that have created what we see today. So the transactional is more of a, a Band-Aid. I, I call it a Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it, I'm not, not from the standpoint it's not needed. Right. Because in healthcare, you have to stop the bleeding. You have to do something to make sure that the person doesn't die. Mm-hmm. So you do things to try to protect, try to stop them from continuously having a bleed out, for example. But it doesn't allow you to actually fix what's wrong. And transformative work will force us to really dig down to the question of why is it that we have continuous generation poverty and then address those issues. And and it's always important to speak. You can't stop transactional work because we have so much poverty. Right. It has to stay in place. It has to stay in place. But there's not enough resources at this point, in my opinion, in this community and across the country that's dealing with trying to go after transformative uh, interventions. Mm -hmm. We have to look at the systems, processes, and the true whys of why things are like they are today. Absolutely. So that's digging deep, and that's stepping on toes. Yes. And that's bringing out things that some people don't want to hear. Yeah, it'll bring out things like even social service agencies who are self-perpetuating itself by just being transactional. Uh, the problem never goes away, so the need is always there. Mm-hmm. What you have to do is look at how do we uh, make ourselves irrelevant in the, from, from a social service perspective. But also the government. I mean, the government is controlled through political powers, and there's a lot of benefit for having large groups of people in poverty in this country. So you have to speak to the underlying structures that are keeping people in poverty. That means you need to talk to the gov- government and to let them re- and remind them that they're for the people and not for the power. First of all, our community has to understand this is not the way it has to be. And, and I would love for our community to say, yes, we want you to change it but not look at it from the standpoint, and, and we need monies to come into the community to make it stop. That's not the issue. I mean, yes, it helps, but it's not going to change anything. Mm-hmm. In, in a lot of ways, if we think about what happened during uh, the, the, the Floyd issue yes. and our young people were saying we want change in the police department, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about changing the culture, changing the system in which creates police officers, and changing the purpose of the police officers, the police departments across the country to be more sensitive to a diverse community. That's, right. a, that's a deep change. And that doesn't necessarily require more funding. You utilize what you have, but you change the way you're doing things. Exactly. And that's the same thing with healthcare. Mm-hmm. Healthcare is t- that's one of the largest industries in the United States. And if you look at it compared to other c- countries, it's way higher than it needs to be compared to the, the average. And then we find other countries have healthier outcomes than we do. That means we're That's misallocating true. our resources. 
And we've built our healthcare system that's not the most effective in the world from a cost perspective mm-hmm. and also from an outcome perspective. And so uh, you look at those systems and you ask the question, why are so many people still sick given the fact that we spend so much money? And a lot of times people say determinants of health. And, yeah, we have problems with housing and all that. But we also have problems with healthcare resources being placed in the right place, okay. in the right communities mm-hmm. for the right reasons. The other problem is we gotta, we got to handle this issue around race. Uh, talk to a lot of friends Long overdue. who don't look like me, mm-hmm. who says, George, I'm not racist. I said, probably not. You don't have to be because your systems are, are. So you can sit back and just feel good about you not understanding that the systems that are built are built with the intent of exclusion. Episode four features Dr. Debbie Lassiter, Executive Director of Convergence Resource Center, an organization that helps survivors of human trafficking. Arnold Syfax, head of the agency's He Mad campaign, also joins me. I love this. The campaign is about men taking a stand against human trafficking and making sure their actions don't contribute to it. As uh, uh, Dr. Lasseter was stating, um, it's not just local. It's everywhere, and some men don't realize that it's everywhere. Some may make the assumption that it's just in the inner city. It's just in poor communities or things like that. It hits all 72 counties here in Wisconsin. Absolutely. And everyone should be made aware of that and the importance of how it affects not just the victims, but like you stated, the families and things of that nature, but it also affects the economy. Uh, Sex trafficking is, is, is a multi-billion dollar operation, and it affects the economy, which is why we have to not only let men know uh, that this is important to be involved in to take that stand, but for the purpose of getting numbers to change policies to assist in taking these people out of their employment, Very okay, good. that are out there uh, trafficking uh, young girls and boys. It's, it's extremely important for them to take that first step. And this first step, uh, being involved in HEMAT, is basically just taking a pledge. And the pledge is well written. Um, uh, Jason Fields, the former uh, state rep, he actually authored it. And it's a pretty basic pledge. But along with that, if they wanted to get a little bit more involved, they can actually have some training that Dr. Lasseter offers. But the initial step is recognition that it's a problem. It's out there. Right. And men are heavily involved with perpetuating its growth. And then this was amazing. The survivors got it out. Oh. They got it out because to them, when they first saw men taking the pledge, a lot of them were in tears because they said, we've never seen this side of men, that they will stand for us and not hurt us. And we had even men taking the, watching the video and, and tearing up because they were realizing that some of the actions that they do, just as a matter of fact, hanging out with the guys, mm-hmm. going to the strip club, watching porn flicks together, you know, uh, they didn't think there was any harm. But now they know that there is. And that's due to He-Man. And you're talking about 60,000 men taking that pledge last year. Mm-hmm. It was pretty good. We paint such negative pictures of our men. Um, we say negative things about them when something bad comes up with it. Well, I knew they were going to be like that. But what this does is this shows you that that's not the majority. Yeah. 
the majority are the guys that are saying, not on my watch. And so this gives those guys an opportunity to stand up and say, hey, I'm not co-signing this. I'm not saying this is cool. And, you know, it doesn't start with just uh, uh, thinking about, man, that's really bad. Because we all do that. We all look at bad things mm-hmm. and say, oh, bad, bad things. And we shake our heads, but we don't have any action attached to it. And with HEMAT, they have an action piece attached to it where they actually stand and raise their right hand. You know, we never told them to raise their right hand, but they raised their right hand. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they raised their right hand and they take the pledge and... I was like, well, yeah, well, let's do that. <laughs> and the first time it happened, it was with officials. It was with uh, uh, just a variety of different men. They raised their right hand. They took the pledge, and everyone saw them. So this word of mouth actually becomes infectious, and everyone that sees them do it, they say, well, what are you doing, and what does that represent, and right. and how you get involved in that? And that word of mouth is what increases those numbers. Yeah. Because I really believe that that uh, uh, a program and things of that nature doesn't change things. What changes things is when the mind changes, the behavior follows. Right. We can't force the behavior, but we can definitely give you some stimulation to think differently. Episode 5, Gerrymandering, Politics, and Voting. Some of you may be thinking, I've heard these words so much, I don't want to hear them again. I get it. But Chris Walton brings another voice to the conversation. This black Milwaukee native got interested in politics at the ripe old age of nine, and he was the youngest person to serve as Democratic Party chairman in Milwaukee County. And so I go to my cousin's house, my aunt's house, and my cousins were there, and it was the spring elections. I'm like, we have to vote. And I'm like, yeah, we, no, it's not that important. It's, you know, it's a spring election. We don't even know who the candidates is. And I'm there, I had a baseball bat. <laughs> it's like, no, we're going to vote. We're going to vote now. <laughs> and my aunt was like, did you really? They're like, no, I'm not threatening anybody. I'm not threatening anybody. I'm just holding a baseball bat. It's baseball season. Mm-hmm. We're going to go and vote, though. <laughs> and I, I forced my cousins to go out there and vote because it's like, no, you have to vote. Yeah. Because, honestly, so many places around the world, they're literally holding people back at the barrel of a gun to get them to go and vote. Well, to not vote. To not vote, And here yeah. we are. <laughs> I have to stand here with a baseball bat to force you to go and vote. Mm-hmm. You know, we have we something's have wrong out. with that picture, isn't it? right? Yeah, and too many people, you know, risk their lives, yeah, so that we would have that opportunity to exactly. vote. That's what I always think about. You know, you can't make excuses, right? Yeah. I, and it's not that's not even that far back. My mm. grandparents weren't allowed to vote mm. in Mississippi and in Tennessee. Yeah, and here I am, you know. It kind of just shows the evolution of, of time and just America, especially in, and in black American history. Here my here go my grandparents, they weren't allowed to vote. Yeah. And now here I am, the leader of a, of a political party where they moved to. You know, last year we had an amazing turnout. It was the highest turnout in American history. Mm-hmm. But it was two-thirds of the people eligible to vote showed up and voted. Two-thirds. And that was the highest in American history. Yeah. Um, there's still people out there who aren't in the, who aren't in the pool. We got to get them out there into the pool and get them wanting to go out there and vote. Uh, until we get 100%, I won't be satisfied. Even if we're at 99, I'm like, yeah, there's still some people out there who did <laughs> Look, not go out there and vote. Let's go find them. We are. We got to figure rock. it out. We got to go get them. <laughs> and it's you know, it's we just have to keep pushing. Yeah. Um, there's so many ways right now that people are trying to get in the way to stop people from voting because it's not working for it's not what they want for their cause is mm-hmm. more people voting. 
but we're a democracy. Everybody voting should be the cause that we're behind no matter what, whether they're with you or not. You should be encouraging people to get out and vote. We call episode six, Suppressed by Design, Intentional Voter Suppression. David Daly is the best-selling author of Rat Eft, Why Your Vote Doesn't Count. He lays out the strategic partisan gerrymandering that took place in 2011 and how it's affected Wisconsin ever since, including right now. In effect, many voters don't pick their representatives. Instead, the politicians pick their constituents. Politicians love the ability to draw their own districts, to choose their own voters, to lock themselves into power. Both sides have done this for a long, long time. The modern era of redistricting really begins in the aftermath of Barack Obama's victory in 2008. And this is the second consecutive election that Democrats win huge victories. Of course, in 2006, kind of the response to the the failures of the Iraq war and the beginning of the the crashing economy um, really knits together a coalition that political observers had seen coming for some time, sort of the changing demographics of the nation, the the changing racial and ethnicity patterns, um, political patterns among younger voters, all of this coming together in Obama's historic victory in 2008, the election of our first black president, but also these huge Democratic majorities in state houses around the country, a supermajority of 60 Democratic U.S. senators, imagine that in this day and age, Mm -hmm. uh, and a high watermark in the U.S. House for Democrats going back years. And if you go back and you look at the coverage of this on election night of 2008, um, you had the brightest minds in both political parties on all of the networks, left, center, and right, talking about how this was the new emerging Democratic majority and that the Republican Party could be a minority party in this nation for a generation. And, right, it didn't exactly work that way, did it? Um, And that's because there were a handful of Republican strategists who understood that, yes, 2008 was a historic year but that the 2010 election could be much more consequential because every 10 years after the census, what we do is we redraw every state legislative and congressional district in the country. That is redistricting. Um, And they said, well, okay, how can we use redistricting as a path back to power? And they said, well, in just about 80% of our states, It's the state legislature that controls redistricting. So what happens if we study the rules and figure out who's got a seat at the table in all of the most important states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, Michigan, North Carolina, Virginia, Florida, Texas, Alabama, Indiana, and how can we draw lines after that that lock ourselves into power for a decade? They call this REDMAP. It's short for the Redistricting Majority Project. Republicans spend $30 million, that's that chump change in American Mm -hmm. politics, right? Trying to win back state legislative chambers in 2010 in those crucial states. They won all of them. They have not handed back a single one since, 
And this has remade our nation, our politics, our policy at every level from the state legislature on up. And we're talking again, 60, 70% of voters in these states voting for change. That's not just one party. When you've got 70% of voters in, in Ohio, you've got, you've got everybody coming forward and saying, right. this is not the way this is supposed to work. So, I mean, I think that's what this is going to take. It's going to take all of us standing up here, you know, and realizing, I mean, Dr. King talked about the moral arc of the universe being long, but bending towards justice. You know, it's taken a really long time to uh, bend towards justice. But what I think we need to understand is that the arc doesn't bend on its own. The arc only bends on all of us grab it with both of our hands and pull it in the direction that it has to go. And that that is all of our jobs. Democracy can't be taken for granted. Democracy is not a noun, it is a verb. It's something that we have to tend and work at or else we can lose it. Next week, we'll review a few more season six episodes of the 411 Live, Real People, Real Talk. We are a nonprofit organization. Find out more about us and how you can help our mission by going to our website, the411live.org. I hope you'll join us next time. I'm Beverly Taylor. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org. 